Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Richard M. Weaver said, Responsible rhetoric, as I conceive it, is a rhetoric responsible primarily to the truth. It measures the degree of validity in a statement, and it is aware of the sources of controlling that it employs. As such, it is distinct from propaganda, which is the distortion of the truth for selfish purposes. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My, my name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is responsible rhetoric? How does it differ from propaganda? What value is there in reading Richard M. Weaver's lesser-known essays. Joining us today on the Wittenberg Hour is Dr. Jim Tolman. Dr. Tolman is the author of, of Rhetoric and Redemption in La Rioja and the host of this summer's Tuesdays with Tolman. Jim, welcome back. Thank you, Jocelyn. It's my honor to be back, and I appreciate Wittenberg Academy sponsoring Tuesdays with Tolman so graciously. Absolutely. I am extremely excited for this summer. And uh, we, we both know why, because the topic at hand is Richard M. Weaver, and, uh, and he is definitely a favorite of mine. This summer's Tuesdays with Tolman challenges us to experience some of Richard M. Weaver's lesser-known essays. First of all, walk us through the title of this summer's Tuesdays with Tolman. You entitled our experience for this summer, Bringing Back Weaver to Launch a Responsible Rhetoric Reset. That's a fantastic title, by the way. Uh, I love how it just kind of rolls off off the tongue. Um, what, what should participants ex expect with a title like this? Yeah, well... Uh, other than the rhetorical flair, the first of all, let me begin at the end by explaining that I chose reset because if you recall six months ago or so, people were talking about a reset. Um, I can't remember the name of the project that um, the, the globalist designed, but they were thinking in terms of using the pandemic as a way to reset how governments respond to a global crisis. So I thought it would be fun to just exploit that term um, for a different purpose. And what I would like to reset is interest in rhetorical studies. Of course, you realize and anyone who knows me realize that my passion really is to try and somehow, some way, get enough people excited about a traditional approach to rhetorical studies because it's so vital today. And responsible rhetoric really encapsulates what's vital about rhetorical studies that is lacking today, not just in academia, but in our society at large. People don't seem to have the capacity today to any large extent, to sit down at the table together and discuss things in mutual respect and listen to one another and respond with empathy to one another. And a responsible rhetoric is that. It's that which is lacking that results in division and militant action against people who are different than me with whom I disagree and a lack of capacity to hash out those differences um, as good citizens and members of a community. So when we think about a, a reset, you know, if, if we have to uh, reset something, a lot of times we think about technology in, in that regard. Um, you know, a lot of times that's kind of synonymous with, with a reboot, right? We're, we're going back to how we began and 
if if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, what you're suggesting is that we kind of uh, peel away the veneer or uh, the linoleum or, you know, all of the things <laughs> that have been um, kind of piled on top of rhetoric and, and called rhetoric, peel all of that away and say, okay, let's look at what this actually is and interact with that and learn from that. Am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, a lot of what's um, happened in rhetorical studies in the last few generations is uh, pursuit of all of the lines of inquiry that make academia sexy and interesting to people who are easily bored with things that are traditional. And when you peel all the, when you strip it down, rhetoric is very much like speaking the truth in love to one's neighbor and it is an excellence in rhetoric is really tied to excellence in one's vocation and being a good member of a community and that sort of thing and um, that of course does not appeal to people who want to celebrate difference over unity and who want to celebrate the avant-garde as opposed to the traditional and um, those sorts of, you know, differing values and viewpoints. So uh, because it's accumulated all of this baggage and all of these extra layers of potentially interesting lines of inquiry, but taken together uh, creates a forest within which these trees of rhetoric are lost getting back to the font of the traditional liberal arts approach to rhetorical studies will reap a lot of benefits for the life of the world for our society for our free society in which persuasion is the chosen means of bringing people into line with one's viewpoint as opposed to coercion which is the only means really utilized in a controlled society. And so for someone like Weaver, he is the font for my reset of rhetoric because he was, I think, very interested in unraveling all of the intricacies of how propaganda was utilized in World War II and how rhetoric in its essence is different from propaganda and why it should not be lumped together with propaganda. So that explains some of the essay titles because these public speeches, these lectures, these lesser known works of Weaver's were published in the mid 50s. So 10 years after the end of World War too. So I think he was reflecting quite heavily on these things at that time. Well, and it seems that there is this emphasis on truth and that, you know, thinking back to that opening quote, which comes from uh, his essay, Responsible Rhetoric, that the, dis the distinction between rhetoric and propaganda is that either truth or distortion of the truth, which I would perhaps be so bold as to say that when you are distorting truth, you no longer have truth. So does that make propaganda a lie that we like to believe? Well, yes, and once we get into his essay on propaganda, which was a encyclopedia entry in Collier's Encyclopedia, his work at the University of Chicago led him to an acquaintance with a gentleman who was um, editing volumes for Collier's Encyclopedia, and he asked Weaver to do a piece on propaganda. So that's where that came from. And about the same time... He gave a talk at the 19th Century Women's Club in Oak Park, Illinois, on February 28, 1955. I'm reading the note 
from Ted W. Smith's treatment of responsible rhetoric in the defense of tradition, which is Ted Smith's volume of the collected lesser known works of Richard Weaver. More on that in a minute. So I just thought it was really interesting that this was a talk, responsible rhetoric was a talk he gave to a women's club in Oak Park, Illinois. So they were interested in what was going on at the university and Weaver was talking to them about the difference between rhetoric and propaganda because they were being bombarded by Madison Avenue continually, especially in the post-World War II era, right? It was time to have two cars in every garage and, you know, forget the war effort by uh, material acquisitions and so forth. So, of course, someone of Weaver's te temperament was going to be uh, intrigued by and challenged by that such that he wanted to show modernists their uh, error in pursuing those pleasures and those um, that acquisition, that consumerism. And so here he is talking to, you know, housewives and, and leadership of the, um, the women's club in Oak Park. Anyway, um, Weaver not only thought about those things, but he always thought how to advance rhetorical studies. And it's interesting to think about that. Um, just the the timeline of that. I mean, obviously, we we talk about Weaver's writings and and speeches being timeless. But if we think about that context that you just brought to light, you know, they th these women had just come off of you know many years of you know loose lips sink ships and all of these sorts of uh, you know propaganda was was everything, you know, during, uh, during the last years, uh, d during the time of, of World War II, and thinking about making a, a transition from that and viewing that propaganda as truth, and Weaver challenging that, to a certain extent, that may have been a little bit unsettling i mean i can i could see how if if this uh if this speech was delivered now um how unsettling it might be to people who see propaganda as truth yeah and the parallel is absolute as far as i'm concerned because he was no doubt astonished and perplexed and probably depressed to some extent at how malleable the populace was and how susceptible they were to that propaganda and how easily they fell into line with it. Yeah, absolutely. So take us through the titles of the essays that we will be experiencing this this summer and and I don't know if if you've picked up on the fact that I I've I've intentionally used this word experiencing uh, rather than just reading uh, because I I I I want our listeners to understand that that Tuesdays with Tolman is an experience it's not just something where you read some essays and well that was nice uh, but. But because of of the mean when you say that, but as as we read these essays week by week, we also get together live via Zoom and we discuss these these essays. And you, as our host, uh, bring to light points and you allow uh, for the other participants in Tuesdays with Tolman to, to ponder together these writings and, and speeches of, of Weaver. So kind of uh, circling back around to, to my initial question, since I kind of derailed us uh, as, I was, as I was talking, take us through the titles of these essays uh, so that our listeners 
kind of have a 50,000 foot view of this experience that if they sign up and we'll make sure that in the episode notes, we put the link to sign up for Tuesdays with Tolman, um, what they might expect from, from these essays in this Tuesdays with Tolman experience. Well, I don't think you were completely derailing us, Jocelyn, because first of all, I do want to make it clear that we only meet for an hour a week, and it is free, by the way. And that's the generous part about Wittenberg Academy's generous sponsorship of these discussions. So thank you for that again. But the hour is not sufficient to do justice to these essays. And I try to really allow people an opportunity to voice what they're experiencing and to process these ideas during our live sessions. But the asynchronous element that you provide through the content management system of Wittenberg Academy is that people can go on there and read my promptings, questions that I pose, and comments, and we have a lively dialogue going back and forth. So there's a lot going on in the background online that supports our time together once a week, Tuesdays at 7.30 Central. Okay, first of all, so that wasn't a derail in my opinion. Second of all, um, I'm gonna start with the title of the book. It is my desire that all the participants buy this book in defense of tradition, collected shorter writings of Richard M. Weaver, 1929 to 1963, edited by Ted Smith III. The book is less than $15. It was originally a project of Liberty Press out of Indianapolis, Indiana. And it was a labor of love by Ted W. Smith, who was a wonderful Weaver scholar who I just started to get to know before he died. He died while he was finishing this volume, and he spent years looking through the Weaver papers at Vanderbilt University and other depositories where they had on, uh, on hand boxes of old manuscript, essay, book chapters, and book reviews. He did a lot of book reviews. And, uh, and Smith, and he actually developed relationships with Weaver's relatives who had private papers and memoirs that were from Weaver family gatherings and the like in the Carolinas. So really interesting and real yeoman work that Ted Smith did. And what drove him was he realized that the collected essays of Weaver that had come out since he died were so limited. And in many cases, authors and publishers were recycling the same essays from other works, from previous works. And so the collections of essays that were coming out were like best hits of Richard Weaver, right? So as a result, people who only took the time to read the popular writings of Richard Weaver were only getting, admittedly, his best, most refined works. That's true. But they were a limited slice of what he had to offer. And so what you've got here in, in Defense of Tradition is a really nice compendium of essays and speeches and book reviews and little think pieces, really, on the following. Life and Family, The Critique of Modernity, Education, Rhetoric and Sophistic, that's the section we're going to study this summer together for obvious reasons. Then the Humanities, Literature and Language, Politics, History, and of course, the South. Weaver was an apologist for the antebellum South. And so, in fact, he was an apologist in particular for the religiosity of the South. 
it's uh, something that we Lutherans should find highly interesting, the way he went about that. At any rate, a range of topics, all, collect, all the works are collected, and um, Ted Smith writes in his introduction, here's the important thing I want people to realize. This is what motivated our Tuesdays with Tallman 2021. Ted Smith, before he died, wrote that it's kind of a shame that people only get the surface treatment of this great thinker. And so what I've put together here are his lesser known works so people can fill out their understanding of Richard Weaver's thought and see how he thought on a wide range of topics and some of the timeliness of what he wrote. And you and I both discovered very well in that uh, previous podcast series how timely and how prescient Weaver's thought is for our time. Yes, absolutely. And this is why I was so excited when the topic chosen for this summer's uh, Tuesdays with Tolman was uh, another round of, of interaction with Richard M. Weaver because we are living in these times that need Richard M. Weaver and we need to understand this distinction between, especially between propaganda and rhetoric. And we don't have to get into it right this second, but the, the, um, the title that Ted Smith gives this section we're going to be discussing this summer, uh, Rhetoric and Sophistic, is really fascinating to me. And so hopefully before we conclude our time uh, today, our discussion today, hopefully we'll have a moment to get into that. Um, oh, we will. Perfect. Excellent. Be before we do that, though, I just wanted to point out that the second section of In Defense of Tradition is a collection of Weaver's lesser-known works entitled The Critique of Modernity. And I have works that I've produced where I utilize Weaver's approach to the critique of to, – to social critique, to cultural critique. I utilize his approach as a kind of a gold standard for how we – could critique postmodernity and how thinking people today who value tradition and who value traditional Christian ethos and and a traditional Christian worldview can contribute to dialogue in a way that is good for the life of the world and that they need us to do. And we have a responsibility to, in my opinion, to be good cultural cr critics along the lines of Richard Weaver. So I really recommend in that section, um, Life Without Prejudice. It starts on page 88 of the book, and it's a really good critique of the tide of opinion against prejudice. And he talks about that there are actually redeeming qualities in terms of teaching people how to be discriminating consumers of communication, for example. People who have prejudices, who have defined ideas that they privilege and they have uh, opinions about things that they hold to be valid and worth arguing about, that they uh, serve a useful place in society. And if the uh, levelers, the egalitarians have their way, any prejudice or any anything that smacks of prejudice will be done away with. And so he's trying to redeem the notion that there is something good about being prejudicial in the sense of having good discernment and having uh, a dogmatic viewpoint of things that is that enables one to um, to make value claims and evaluate the claims of others. 
Well, and this is an essential component of being a thinking Christian, right? In terms of of looking at words, for example, and you know, society has stolen and I'm I'm using that word in its full force, stolen so many words and turned them into something that they are not. Yes. You know, rhetoric is one of them. Yes. Partly self self-inflicted by rhetoricians who got enamored of relativism, feminism, Dadaism, you know, um, all of the trends in the past couple generations that have taken it astray. And as you mentioned earlier, piled up layer upon layer of not only non-essentials, but um, extraneous matter that clouds the true essence of responsible rhetoric. So I was just going to try and recommend before we get into the section on rhetoric and sophistic i was going to try to recommend some of the other readings because this is a large volume and yes i wanted people to know that there are some that have jumped out at me over the years that i think would make a decent place for them to dive in to this work so autobiographically the first section has these two essays Address of Dr. Richard M. Weaver, Chicago University, page nine, and Up From Liberalism. Up From Liberalism is actually Weaver's famous autobiographical essay about how he decided that he no longer had an appetite for socialism. Socialists were really um, popular in academia at his time in the University of Kentucky, and so he became an officer and he was really involved. And then he went to Vanderbilt and started hanging out with the Southern agrarians. And he realized he didn't like the socialists as people, but he loved being around the agrarians and what it was that they celebrated. And so that led to his conversion to become one of the primary voices for early American philosophical conservatism. And he wrote, by the way, ideas have consequences was published in 1948. And I think a lot of people have heard of that work and may not actually know that it was uh, Richard Weaver that wrote it, but it's a really famous critique of the decline of Western society. Okay, so um, then I mentioned Life Without Prejudice and in education, I really like education and the individual to write the truth there was a program that was very popular called to tell the truth and they would have panelists of three or four people that would uh, all claim to be this individual person. And then the panelists, uh, the, the star panelists would ask them questions and try to determine who's telling the truth and who's a poser. You know, it was really fun. And uh, so he, worked together with his friends at the University of Chicago that were teaching the basic course in rhetoric. And they came together to came up with a title about to write the truth. That was actually now that I think about it, their title for their essay was about as clever as our title for Tuesdays with Tom this summer. But they what they were doing is they were playing around with the idea that just teaching students to write in a utile way was not as beneficial or educational and did not promote human excellence as much as teaching them to write the truth and to value the truth. And so it's a matter of standards and goals and what you're aiming for in your pedagogy, right? That's a good essay for education um, folks. And then um, looking for an argument, I use that all the time when I'm teaching argumentation and debate. I have exercises in class entitled Looking for an Argument and another one called Minding the Premises, which is a play on words. So that essay is where I got the idea to have that sort of exercise in my classes. And then Education for What, page 262. That's a really good one. Um, in section five of the work, 
page 405, The Importance of Cultural Freedom. That's one of the important essays of Richard Weaver, in my opinion. It really is congruent with what Lutherans teach about Christian liberty. And it's a real eye-opening analysis of what happens when you try to control the cultural appetites, so to speak, and what people consider important and beautiful and good through propaganda and verse, versus through, um, you know, essential truth, beauty, and goodness. It's a great contrast. And it's really indicative of the kind of deep thought that Weaver put into these matters. Okay, and then in politics, under politics, the middle of the road, where it leads. My mentor, Charles Follett, turned me on to that essay when I was in my undergraduate years um, because it was the Reagan era. And we were talking a lot about middle of the roadism. And, uh, you know, basically he taught me that because of this essay, you know, driving down to the middle of the road is not the safest place to drive. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it is. And then uh, that's on 536. And page 559 is on setting the clock right. It's about turning back the clock. Everybody, that's a knee-jerk reaction, right, from progressives whenever you talk about tradition. Well, you can't turn back the clock. Well, what if the clock is off? You need to set it right. You need a reset. <laughs> See what I did there? Well played. All right. Lord Acton, 619. Lord Acton, the historian as speaker. I've learned more about Lord Acton by reading Weaver essays than uh, anything else. Not that I've done a lot of study in it, but let me just say it this way. I really appreciate what he's taught me about Lord Acton. And then, as I mentioned earlier, this is the last section. The South is the category there. And uh, the regime of the South, Weaver talks about the regime of the South in terms of all of the elements that define the Southern ethos. And it's really a wonderful celebration of the plantation life, the life of leisure, of leisurely inquiry, you know, how they were so educated and music was so important, and their religiosity, you know, all of those elements. It's really good. So regime of the South is very has very little to do with the politics of it. Okay. And then finally, 757, VU Prof describes fugitive agrarians. It's a nice little overview uh, that Weaver did in a, a book review about a work on the Southern agrarians. So those are all the other essays within this collection that I think people could check out before they get deep into uh, any particular section. But we are, of course, going to get deep into the summer. Section four, rhetoric and sophistic. So rhetoric and sophistic, the, the title itself is very intriguing to me, you know, especially as, uh, you know, having thought about and considered rhetoric and sophistic and all of the weight, you know, our, our faculty reading group, uh, we, we just had our final session uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, and we were reading Isocrates, and he was uh, speaking against uh, the the sophists, yes. and so thinking about sophistry and how uh, how deeply rooted you know those of us who who follow uh, a classical liberal arts model of teaching and learning how deeply set against sophistry we are just as we engage with not just the ancients, but also the, the, the church fathers, uh, the reformers, you know, all of these guys, all through history, when you think of and speak of education, 
there are always sophists hanging out in the corners or sometimes on the stages as the case may be. Um, But there's, there's always this, this um, need, needful um, need for awareness and uh, kind of a, a shoulder against sophistry. So when I, when I noticed that this, when I noticed that this was the title of the section we were going to be uh, experiencing this summer, I was very intrigued. Yeah, well, back to our initial conversation as well. The reason, in part, it's because of Isocrates um, on the sophist, but mainly because of discriminations and prejudices that Weaver held against sophistry and against equating rhetoric with sophistry that really defined my own view. And anyone who's had my classes and you certainly understand that I insist that true rhetoric has not the kind of moral repugnance or the uh, indifference to truth that propaganda or sophistry or bombast has. And so there's a need to discriminate between what is real, what really qualifies as rhetoric as a noble endeavor that's essential in traditional liberal arts training and education and is considered the capstone of liberal arts education and is concerned with the good of neighbor and molding people who are good citizens, for example, and who are good persons who understand and can discern the difference between truth and a lie and between an attempt to persuade them that's based on exaggeration and untruth and dishonesty and honest persuasion, responsible rhetoric. So that's the whole line that we're following here. And it's really important because it is increasingly difficult in an age where people don't even believe in truth. The people who are at the levers of power oftentimes don't even believe in a objective truth. And yet here we are believing, teaching, and confessing this is most certainly true. And so that's in a nutshell why I always insist that traditional liberal arts education in which training in dialectic and rhetoric in tandem to cultivate wisdom and eloquence are so vital to people with our Christian worldview. If you have a confessional and creedal worldview that in, is encapsulated in the this is most certainly true, then you can't really abide all of this social construction of knowledge type nonsense. It doesn't work. For any of our listeners who have not pondered sophistry before, can you just give us in a nutshell, I mean, w- you and I are discussing this uh, as though it's just kind of common knowledge what a, what a sophist is, but for our listeners who may not have pondered this, give us a nutshell definition of, of sophistry or what, what is a sophist? According to Plato, a sophist is one who makes the worst case appear the better. And in a nutshell, sophistry, and this is very simplistic, and you have to be careful, actually, because some of the neo-sophists are honorable people who are attempting to do postmodern critique from a liberal perspective. Okay? So I don't want to throw all of them... I don't want to lump all of them together, but the sophists who vexed Plato and company were people who were only concerned with winning in court and they weren't concerned with collateral damage 
and they utilize facts and truth for selfish gain, for uh, winning hardware at contests, and they, they're really unconcerned with truth, beauty, and goodness. And in fact, they believe that there is no such thing as truth. And even if there were such a thing as truth, we couldn't know what it is. So it's really irrelevant. What matters is winning and what matters is prevailing. Okay. So that's how, if you associate rhetoric with the amoral use of influence on others, using communication to influence others for your own personal agenda, whatever that is, like an amoral tool, like a gun, you know, that can be used for good or evil. If that's all rhetoric is, then sophistry is rhetoric. It's a very advanced form of rhetoric because it wins a lot, right? And so that's what a sophist is. And that's why I maintain that rhetoric has to be ethical all the way down. Otherwise, it's something different, like sophistic or propaganda or bombast or demagoguery. There are other words to express forms of communication, forms of influencing other people that are dishonest and um, have no concern for the good of the auditor. And, and this would be then correct why when Weaver talks about rhetoric, he says that when he's talking about responsible rhetoric, you know, yeah. using that phrase that, that he says that rhetoric is responsible primarily to the truth, you know, yeah. that, 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 that ethos has to be truth. Yes. And it's not even just the ethos of rhetoric that is responsive to and responsible to the truth. It is the methodology that's where the relationship between dialectic and rhetoric come, comes in. So the ethics of rhetoric and the relationship of dialectic to rhetoric and how that all works and how it's supposed to um, provide a paradigm example within our curriculum for cultivating wisdom and eloquence and how you apply that to questions of the day, right? And how you apply that knowledge to the evaluation of cultural trends when you're doing your cultural critique for the good of humanity and for the life of the world. All of those things come, uh, Weaver touches on all of those things in his writings. And it's not from an overtly religious point of view, but his point of view, I assure you, is very congruent with our worldview. And he, in fact, was an Anglican who was uh, very committed to that worldview, but he was writing to, for the popular audience. So it's kind of um, less obvious in his writings. He tries to write from that point of view without making that the object of his study, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So kind of like C.S. Lewis writing fiction, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So thinking about then um, the the titles, just let's just flip through this section. Yeah, it's and, time to do that, right? Yeah. Oops, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the, the titles of these essays, and, and I mean, we're reading them as essays. Obviously, some of them were speeches that were transcribed. Um, but but give us the the titles um, and and maybe a couple words on on each of these essays, uh, just to as we come to the end of our time together on this episode, just to really prime our listeners and yeah. and get them excited about this opportunity this summer. Okay, and I'm going to start by reading the note down at the bottom of the page. I don't even know the page number two seventy three on Parson Weems, A Study in Early American Rhetoric. Note one, 
an essay apparently written in the period 1949 to 1952 and intended as a chapter in The Ethics of Rhetoric. The Ethics of Rhetoric is a textbook Weaver intended be published and used as a textbook to guide the study of rhetorical scholars in the ethics of rhetoric. And one of the things that he was interested in doing is showing how what eventually led to the publication of Languages Sermonic. Hmm? He wanted to show how there is an inherently valuative element within all public discourse and to develop the ability to discern what those value propositions are when they're not being explicitly stated, when they are not themselves the problematic. In other words, using people's surface rhetoric as an index to their deep rhetoric, which suggests you what kind of game are they playing? Got it? Got it. Right? So the ethics of rhetoric was Weaver's textbook, and Ted Smith found this typescript, probably a final draft, it says, located in box one, folder five of the Richard M. Weaver papers at Vanderbilt University. Isn't that interesting? So he's out there digging up this stuff, and apparently this one didn't make the cut, but it's really a great place to start because I'm hoping that the pastors out there that are in your circle are going to really value what Weaver had to say. And I have it all marked up and I'm ready to talk about it. But essentially, here's what it is. The rhetoric of early Americana that Weaver discusses here boils down to this. Parson Weems was writing biographies in a time where the American ethos was really being formed in the vein of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Parson Weems would would actually go around on a circuit and give speeches and give sermons about these great American heroes. And um, when he did it, his rhetorical style was what interested Weaver it had a lot of amplification. It had a lot of elegant, imaginative imagery. And he spent a lot of time, much more time, drawing mental imagery than most people could stomach in the modern era. And that's what he focused on, Weaver, focused on how that was really appealing to people in the 18th century, but it went out of vogue in later centuries. And he questions, what was it about that that made it so appealing to people and how did it fall from, from popularity? So that's the essence of what uh, you learn by reading Parsons Weems, Parson Weems. Responsible rhetoric, as I mentioned at the outset, was just a talk that Weaver gave to this women's club in Oak Park, Illinois, but um, it was part of what's called a great issues, a great issues um, series. So these women were interested in learning. And um, this, I, I was thinking in the introductory section too, we ought to remember that the whole Rosie Riveter phenomenon in World War II changed the status of women and uh, irreversibly. And Weaver wrote about that too. And ideas have consequences. Weaver wrote about the phenomenon of women going into the workforce for the first time in American society and how that changed the whole social dynamic. So we should have some interest in that too, right? Absolutely. So, So the fact that he's giving this talk in 1955 to this women's group um, presupposes that they were interested in great issues and they were hungry for knowledge and they thought they could do something with that knowledge to improve society. That was not the case when, uh, you know, in previous generations. Women had very little say. 
Okay, propaganda, responsible rhetoric. We've talked about that plenty. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I know there will be opportunity to to flesh that out even further uh, come this summer. Yeah. If if so, I I don't know. I I don't know if we could even flesh it out any more than we already have. That's why we're trying to cram this in the last five minutes of the podcast. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, so propaganda is the next word. And it's actually uh, William T. Couch was the editor of Collier's 1955 yearbook. So the Collier Encyclopedia had a yearbook every year, and he and Weaver had become acquainted, and he asked Weaver to write the section on propaganda. So that shows you how much Weaver was, was reflecting on propaganda in that time. He was trying to analyze so that people could understand the propaganda that was being employed by Nazi Germany, but also propaganda that was being employed by our war machine as well. And I think that's even more crucial to understand in postmodern times. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's not like there's no propaganda ever being utilized on us. <laughs> right, right. In, in fact, it's, it's, it's so pervasive that sometimes I wonder if there's any rhetoric out there at all. Yes. Okay. So the next essay, <laughs> I have to read a portion of this. Remember when we had those podcasts early on in the life of the Wittenberg Hour and we just ended up reading whole sections to each other? Absolutely. Was it was ridiculously good. Listen to this. The best of everything. This was a national review piece. Weaver was around when William F. Buckley came out of Yale and was instrumental in, along with, with Russell Kirk, Weaver and, and uh, William F. Buckley, uh, in establishing American conservative political, uh, our conservative philosophical thought. And, um, and so if you're familiar with the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, Weaver and Kirk were really involved in that early on, before it was known as the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. It was the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists, initially. They were trying to articulate the difference between the individual and the collective. And the collective was really in vogue in academia in their day. Of course, we've gotten well beyond that, right? Oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. So this was from National Review. Listen to this opener. I just love it. Culture is, to a great extent a response to images that people carry around in their heads. And in past times, most of these images have come to us from an assimilated religion and literature. Today, with advertising taking a good share of time and attention away from these, it is tempting to speculate on the effects of the imagery it tends to substitute. Okay, so here we go with the Madison Avenue critique. The role of the propaganda that comes from the ad agencies in shaping postmodern culture. What's the one thing that they hit on more than anything else? Dissatisfaction. And what does Paul teach us about being content in no matter what circumstances we find each other? There's a nice contrast for you. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. All right, concealed rhetoric in scientific sociology. That's also a chapter in one of his um, more famous works. And it is, uh, I think it's in the ethics of rhetoric as well, as a matter of fact. But it's basically concealed rhetoric in scientific sociology. He talks about scientism and he talks about sociology as an example of scientism where people are pretending to do social science in an objective fashion just like you do physical sciences and so and ergo the deductions that you draw from what science has spoken to us get the anthropomorphization of science that was a fallacy that he talked about quite a bit 
um, as though science can speak. Science does not speak. There is an inherently and a oftentimes masked um, element of rhetoric within scientism and within social sciences in particular that Weaver attempted to unmask. And in fact, there's a whole area of study. When I was in um, my graduate studies called the rhetoric of science that was pretty much motivated by that. I bet if you trace the roots of it, it would go back to these musings by Richard Weaver about the rhetorical elements within scientific writing. And it's, it's an attempt to show that, Hey, there's a lot more persuasion going here, going on here. My mentor in my PhD, John Angus Campbell made a living analyzing the marginalia of Darwin in his journals. You know, he would write refutations of other people's work and his uh, attackers. And he would, he was very clearly conducting a rhetorical dialogue within his own mind about how he can persuade other people about the truth of what he's observing as he's touring around the world on his ship. Interesting, right? Absolutely. Well, and I, I haven't had uh, a chance to dive into this essay yet, uh, but I'm extremely interested in how it speaks to what we've experienced over the last year. Oh, yeah. In terms of, you know, you, you, you unintentionally, I think, um, used, used science and masking in the same uh, phrase, (laughs) in the the same description. (laughs) And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm interested in terms of rhetoric and science and how these things all work together. I think that will be a, a fascinating discussion when we get to that essay. There's a very short section on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Oh, that was in National Review too. So he's talking about the Lincoln-Douglas debates here, but he um, he had a whole chapter on this in the Ethics of Rhetoric, il- illustrating the the competing worldviews between Lincoln's worldview and Douglas's worldview. So again, using the rhetoric as an index to the worldview. All right. So this is, that's only like one, two, three and a half pages long in this. So we're going to have a luxury on that week when we discuss that essay. But I just want to say just a side note, because I really enjoyed my time at St. Paul Hamill. I went to St. Paul Hamill, Illinois to help that school uh, with some faculty development and to teach a little bit there. And I just, uh, I just enjoyed so much traveling around that area on the back roads on a Saturday and, and exploring the confluence of the Missouri and the Mississippi is about 20 miles west of there. And Alton, Illinois was where the final Lincoln-Douglas debate was held. So little historical tid- tidbit there. That's if you ever get a chance to go to the Mississippi River bottoms there in um, extreme western central Illinois, you should check it out. It's so beautiful. Right now it's just emerald and really nice. Okay, then finally, this section ends with the cultural role of rhetoric and languages sermonic. Now, the cultural role of rhetoric is a staple in all of my rhetoric teaching and i get more reaction to that essay it really confirms for me the wisdom of assigning it to my students i get more reaction to that essay than anything else that i uh, assign in my readings and so i really recommend the cultural role of rhetoric and the thing that's interesting about this is guess what ted smith found a version of the cultural role of rhetoric that's quite different from the one published in uh, in the works of Richard Weaver that are more popular. So this is fun. It gives you a little different take on it. And then Language is Sermonic is the best essay that I never assign in my classes that I, uh, you know, I will um, when I get a chance to do more college level teaching. 
I always discuss language as sermonic in that context, but it's, it's a little bit much. It takes you in a, a lot different direction um, than I try to contain my teaching at the high school level. So I've never utilized language as sermonic in the uh, high school arena, but it's definitely good college material. And lots of Lutherans pick up on the idea that uh, there's a collection of essays entitled Language is Sermonic, in which this is the lead essay. And um, a lot of Lutherans focus, a lot of pastors, obviously, uh, focus on, oh, Language is Sermonic. That's cool. I'm going to have to read that. I'll have to get that volume. But truth of the matter is the volume's hard to find. It's out of print. So, but here's a version of that essay right here. And what does he say about it? Let me read the note just a second. In Roger Nebergall, editor, Dimensions of Rhetorical Scholarship, Norman, University of Oklahoma, Department of Speech, 1963. So that was produced posthumously. And Language is Sermonic, I know, came out, the book came out from Louisiana State University Press. So there was some link between Oklahoma and LSU at that time. Uh, probably some conservative professors that were really excited about what Weaver was doing. And then Weaver dies in 1963. And so they collected these essays together as kind of a tribute to him. But I do know that language is sermonic was originally a speech that he gave to an in, in, intercollegiate society of individualists gathering at the University of Oklahoma on a torrid Wednesday evening or something like that. I can't remember. He did it during the summer. I'm, I, I flipped to the end of, of this essay, and, and maybe it's not fair. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll spoil it. Um, but, but it just... It, <laughs> it seemed like a nice bow to put on our, our episode today. Um in terms of um, that, it, it's it's the last paragraph, uh, the last, uh, the second to last sentence. Um, page you're on. The, yeah, I'm on page 370. All right, thank you. And um, let's let's actually go up uh, two more sentences. It 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 starts finally. Um, I, I think that might be a nice. Bow uh, to put on our time together today, but also uh, a really intriguing uh, way to 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 leave as a cliffhanger. You know, I don't know if bows and cliffhangers can <laughs> operate simultaneously, but but I think this this might work. Um, so, would you would you mind reading to us, starting at finally in that last paragraph? Uh, just read the the end of of uh, languages sermonic to us. I will read it and I will say this. Weaver has the rapt conclusion down to a fine art. He's so good at that. Finally, we must never lose sight of the order of values as the ultimate sanction of rhetoric. No one can live a life of direction and purpose without some scheme of values. As rhetoric confronts us with choices involving values, the rhetorician is a preacher to us, noble if he tries to direct our passion toward noble ends, and base if he uses our passion to confuse and degrade us. Since all utterance influences us in one or the other of these directions, it is important that the direction be the right one, and it is better if this lay preacher is a master of his art. Dr. Tolman, that was fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to our time together this summer. I would encourage all of our listeners to uh, take a look at that link in the episode notes and sign up for this Tuesdays with Tolman experience this summer. Uh, Dr. Tolman, the final word. Well, as a matter of fact, I was just thinking about a final word regarding that conclusion. Weaver gives the impression there that he's speaking of rhetoric as an amoral tool. 
but in fact, he's really emphasizing the evaluative orientation of a responsible rhetoric. And the implication is if the rhetoric is not supported by that sort of valuation, it's more sophistry or propaganda or bombast than true rhetoric. Fantastic. Well, we hope to see all of our listeners this summer. Dr. Tallman, thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.